Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Bachdead Soundwalks. Hello, fellow travelers. You're listening to Bachdead Soundwalks. I'm Dina. And I'm Arlene. Remember when we discussed how Baghdad's three major structures were the palace, the mosque, and the house? Mm. Why don't we take a look through the mosque? If you're an inhabitant of Baghdad, the mosque would have been so important to your daily life. I mean, think about it. Daily prayer organized your time. And the prayers you're talking about, Ali, are Muslim prayers. Traditionally, Muslims have five daily prayers and they're called salah. Done usually at dawn, noon, afternoon, sunset and night. And we obviously have Arabic words for all of those prayer timings. So others might know them as fagr, duhr, asr. Maghrib and Aisha. Mm. And Ali, as you know, during these prayers, Muslims recite verses from the Quran. They might be standing, bowing, kneeling, obviously not all at the same time. And traditionally, it is communal and led by a prayer leader known as the Imam. In my family, we try to pray together during Ramadan, but obviously because of busy work schedules, we usually end up praying separately. I really sympathize with that because it's the same with my family. During Ramadan, we pray collectively, but every other day, it's by ourselves. Then just as Christians have Sunday worship and Jewish people have Sabbath, Muslims have Friday prayer in the afternoon. And how they usually kept track of those Friday prayers is the adhan, or the call to prayer. I mean, five times a day you would hear the distant sounds of the muezzin who makes that call from the minaret, hearkening you to prayer. And if you're in a city like Baghdad or even in a contemporary Muslim city, you can really hear the call to prayer as it reverberates throughout the city. It starts in the distance as the main mosque starts the call. Then neighborhood by neighborhood picks up that call. It's part of the soundscape of the city, cutting through the din and noise to draw you away from whatever it was you were doing and join one another as one religious body to pray. And it's something that Muslims who live in majority Muslim countries probably take for granted because as a Muslim who grew up in the West, I hardly ever heard the call to prayer. The first time I experienced it when I visited Istanbul, Growing up in the U.S., you only hear it at the mosque. But once you're in Istanbul and you hear it reverberate throughout the city as mosque after mosque picks it up, it really is a completely different experience. And that's kind of how I imagine what you just described about Cairo. That's how I imagine medieval Baghdad would have been like with this great mosque in the center, but all these other smaller mosques for various neighborhoods linked through that call to prayer. Almost like a ripple effect. And how did they keep time in the mosque alley? We have clocks and iPhones. 
Did they just look at the sun? They had clocks too. It's one of the most surprising facts, but they did. It's a really cool thing about this time period. We see amazing advancements in timekeeping technology. They had public sundials and astrolabes and water clocks. All very cool. Whoa, 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 whoa! Hold your horses. Water clocks. Yes, water clocks. These are these fascinating contraptions in which water would drip and things would rise and fall, and it would give you accurate time.、Wow. My favorite is a fake lake with boats on it, and the boats take on water and begin to sink. And when they reach the bottom, it's a certain time of the day. Oh my god, that is so clever! And you mentioned the public sundials. Now I know that's got something to do with the sun. Yes, you're right in that <laughs> regard. They did use the sun. Sundials are these big, beautiful devices that would then cast shade based off of the position of the sun, and it would tell you what hour it was. So you would follow the shadows. And what was the last one? Because I can't even remember how you pronounce that. The astrolabe. This is a really cool piece of technology. It's the iPhone of the ancient and medieval world. It's this round device that you would hold up, and it had an arm that you could move to line up to the sun or the stars, and moving plates. And with it, you could do architecture, navigation, timekeeping, directions.、What? It was so advanced that they used it for like a thousand years, up until like. Two hundred years ago. Oh my God, that sounds so cool! The sun and the stars. Yes, the sun and the stars. It could tell you exactly what stars were in the sky at that time. Just like an iPhone with its night mode. <laughs> Just like an iPhone with its various apps. <laughs> But I feel like this must be better. This sounds a lot cooler, right? A lot cooler, yes. <laughs> so some of these clocks or contraptions you're talking about were mechanical. Were they clocks that you kind of like wind up? Some of them were, yeah. They had engineering feats. There's a story of how Harun al Rashid, which we've mentioned before, the Caliph sends one of these mechanical clocks to、uh, Europe to the Carolingians, and they think it's just magic because it's got this mechanical moving automaton to it, and they're like, "What is this sorcery?" I'm sitting here and I'm like, "What is this sorcery?" <laughs> <laughs> If I'm being honest, though, I'm partial to the sundials. I actually want one in front of my yard. So I need to ask you: Were clocks accessible to everyone? Was it like in public, or was it just the rich kind of had them? Yeah, they were pretty accessible. And if you didn't have access to the clocks, you had the call to prayer. So they were out in public. Okay, so it's very clear that the mosque is important, both as a place of prayer, but also I'm imagining the social function because of. Organizing daily life in Baghdad is that right to say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When was it built? It was probably the oldest structure alongside the palace, or at least one of the oldest structures. We know that the Caliph Mansur, when he built the city, the palace and the mosque were completed very early on because he was in a rush to move in. So the mosque probably was either at the same time of the palace or shortly thereafter. In fact, the mosque is generally called. Al Mansur's mosque. Oh, interesting. And when I think of a mosque today, I think like domes and minarets. Is that the same as what 
that mosque would have looked like? Totally. This structure is very familiar. You would have recognized this structure if you lived in medieval Baghdad. You'd be like, oh, I've seen this before. And there's some similarities that have been passed down over the years and descriptions from various historians that you would recognize. One, Yakut talks about how the mosque is made of beautiful red brick and the dome is decorated with lapis lazuli from Afghanistan, which probably came through the rivers. Amazing. But one of my favorite things about this mosque is that it is slightly different from any mosque you visited. It was probably crooked. What do you mean crooked? Well, maybe not technically crooked, but (laughs) when it was built, they didn't really know the direction of the qibla. And so we're told that they didn't exactly get that direction. And the Qibla is the direction of prayer, where you're facing Mecca in order to pray. Mm. At the same time, the mosque was built against the palace walls, and so it was at a weird, slight angle. And we believe that when we people prayed, they prayed at a slight angle. And so that's why I call it a crooked mosque. See, now I'm skeptical because I find it so hard to believe that the same people that had water clocks and all these magical contraptions couldn't work out the Ibla. It took them time to get those advancements. When they built it, maybe they didn't have the same mathematical and geographic precision, but they eventually, they get it right. And by the way, Ibla and Kibla are the same thing. Egyptians just pronounce it differently. So I didn't just make up a word there. (laughs) I do love the different dialects of Arabic. So Ali, did they ever fix that? Because it's a pretty huge error. Mosques today always face Mecca. It's a non-negotiable when you're praying. So Mm -hmm. I get that we have the advantage of technology that they didn't, but... Was that ever fixed? Yeah, that's a really good point. They do eventually fix it, but it's also, I think when they describe this crooked mosque, it's a reminder of how much the science improves in a short time from when they build the mosque to only one generation afterwards and they have new technologies. And so the mosque is rebuilt several times under Harun al-Rashid and al-Muthadid. You see the mosque expand and they start to address and improve the mosque based off of the new technologies and sciences. Okay, but one thing I'm still confused about is why was the mosque built so close to the palace? I mean, that geography is very important. After all, as we keep saying about real estate. Location, location, location. If the palace was theoretically in the center of that city, the mosque needed to be as well. The palace and the mosque were both these public grounds and so they were linked together. This is so different to how we think of castles and palaces today because usually it's set up in a way that you're away from everyone. Exactly. The palace and the mosque kind of blend together as these public spaces. And of course, it must be a big boost for the caliph to have the palace and mosque right next to each other. Makes his life easier. Right on the money, Dina. The mosque was central to the authority of the caliph. It legitimized his rule. Every Friday, as you mentioned, there is a communal prayer. And at that communal prayer, the sermon would be read in the name of the Khalif. So when other mosques were being built, did that cause issues? Mm, Sort of. There were some problems there. There was resistance to the building of these other mosques because it takes away from the authority of the Khalif. But there's also this practical consideration. 
Baghdad was a big city with just too many peoples. And so a single yeah. mosque isn't feasible. One of the things that Harun al-Rashid does is he builds an auxiliary mosque. It's just sort of an extra space that you can go and pray in. And then we start to see neighborhood mosques in Harbiya and Karakh so that people in those neighborhoods can go to the mosque. Okay, and Harbiya is where a lot of non-Muslims lived, I think you mentioned. Right. So Persian, Jewish, and visitors as well. Did Jews and Christians have their own religious centers or was it just mosques? They did have their own religious centers. We have evidence of a variety of different synagogues and religious sites. Nestorian Christians are probably the largest demographic in the region when the Muslims arrive. And we have Jewish sites as well within Baghdad. And so what happens is that as Baghdad grows, it incorporates these people. In fact, the Maryunan Monastery, which is one of the pre-existing monasteries has this stunning garden and it may have been one of the inspirations for why the Abbasids moved their capital to the area. Oh wow, that's interesting how the Abbasids blend so many different things together. Islam with Greek celestial symbolism, you've also got that round city design with the Persian location and even local Christianity. It's really quite a beautiful blend, Dina. Before Baghdad was built, there was these great monasteries in the area, mostly Syriac and Nestorian. And one of the most famous monasteries was the Monastery of Virgin Gardens. It was inspiring. The historian Ibn Tahir actually writes about just how gorgeous these gardens are. I'm actually going to quote from him because he's got a really cool passage about these gardens. He writes, they were like an embroidered garment adorned with new colors every day. The poppies in them appear like a lover, and the ox eyes like a pale beloved. Behold the staggering branches like maiden figures, and blossoms like their pearl necklaces, and fruits when covered with green leaves, swelling breasts hidden under green garments. Are you sure you didn't write that, Ali? Sounds like something you would say. I strive to be so eloquent. Why do they have such a thing for gardens, Ali? Because for them, paradise was a garden. It's why monasteries and mosques, even to this day, build beautiful gardens. Okay, so mosques and monasteries were connected in some way. They were, and the abbesses were very intentional about that. They incorporated the local Christian population in varying degrees. And it wasn't just in the symbolism of gardens. They even included Christian leaders. There's a famous figure known as Timothy I. And in 781, the Khalif Mahdi invites him to have a religious debate with him, a friendly exchange between the Christian leader and the Muslim leader. And Timothy later would actually write about it. He says, he began to address me and converse with me, not in a harsh and haughty tone, but in a sweet and benevolent way. So there are these beautiful connections between Christians and Muslims. It's very sweet, but also very smart because religion and politics goes hand in hand in this time period. A Khalif who knows how to bring local populations under his rule could rely on their support, right? And if you're elevating Christian and religious leaders to positions of power, then you can make them allies and I guess they're less likely to plot against you. Well, if you were a clever Khalif, then yes, true. Okay, so even things like saying prayers in the name of the Khalif really stands out to me, Ali. 
the symbolism of that is really something. Religious services, these really important sacred rituals brought to you by the Khalif. Yeah, I mean, even today, many countries still do that. I know here in the U.S., we have a prayer breakfast with the president being a part of it. What is that? It's basically every Sunday, the president gets together with his religious advisors. They have breakfast and they pray. Oh, okay. The symbolism is very much like the khalif and the mosque. And on top of that, we see that the mosque isn't just a religious center. It's also a community center. It feeds the poor and the hungry and it takes care of the beggars of the city. It was also where the powerful and the ordinary would have to congregate shoulder to shoulder. So it reinforced his power, but it was also a pretty radical space. What do you mean radical? Well, if the mosque could legitimize the ruler... It could also delegitimize him. In fact, in the 11th century, there's this guy named Basiri who will conquer Baghdad. And in the mosque, he will recite the name of a different khalif to the Abbasids, a symbolic way of saying, someone else is in charge of your city now. Oh, wow. And they just took it? Well... He holds it for at least a few years before they finally take it back. One whole year, he manages to say the prayers in another Khalif's name. Oh, wow. Now that is some intrigue for you. Full of drama. But I got to ask why we talked a lot about men in this episode. You know how I feel about that. Mm -hmm. Where are the women? I'm with you, Dina. There's not a lot of women in this story, but we do have examples of women who became religious leaders and scholars, experts in jurisprudence and Islamic law. One of them was Satayata al-Mahmali, who was a scholar of jurisprudence. And we know that she taught from the great mosque in Baghdad. That is so fascinating. Today, we walked through the Grand Mosque and religious landscape of Baghdad. Next time, Ali, can we please visit the public baths? I'm in. I'm Dina. And I'm Ali. This is a Ubisoft podcast produced by Paradiso Media. Be sure to subscribe to Echoes of History podcast so you don't miss the next episode of Baghdad Soundwalks. See you next time, fellow travelers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.